Scott, we haven't talked much on Triloquy about everything that's going on in Haiti, but that must really uh, be something to be living through for all those people right now. Can you imagine being in in that sort of situation? No, I was, I, it was actually a little bit eyebrow raising that there were some American uh, based yeah. people involved in that assassination too. Like what? Yeah. That's what I was like. Yeah. Folks with American accents. Well, a lot of folks were really shook by, um, some reporting from, uh, Vlad Dutier on CBS this morning, uh, a few days ago, probably about a week uh, ago now. And, uh, what Vlad Dutier is talking about is, uh, just giving some context, uh, talking about the history of Haiti as it relates uh, to the United States, other places in Europe. And he even talks about reparations that were given. So we're going to just listen uh, to a little bit of this to, for our downbeat this week. It was a miracle. But in 1825, that young country was forced to pay reparations to the French slaveholders oh, wow. that they had overthrown or France would again invade and enslave the island. And that debt took 122 years to pay off and made the country chronically insolvent, which coupled with political corruption created the climate of instability, which the country has never fully recovered from after that debt was settled in 1947. I know it's mind blowing and a lot of people don't know this. Well, Haiti as a country that has gained its independence has been on the losing end of things because of forces beyond their control. Did you just tell us that the former slaveholders in yeah. France are the ones who got reparations yep. from yeah. Haiti, bankrupting the country? Yes. Well, what, what about that bit of history. That is something that we should have in the front of our minds. And we have news anchors here, journalists, who are just now hearing about that. I mean, what, what, what do you think about that that shock? You it's, know, the, the fact that it's such buried history or history we well, don't know anyway. That's it. We're not it, taught. That's it. I, I had no idea. And hearing him break it down there in just those few seconds, uh, it makes sense. But what is the answer? I mean... And I think it, you know, when you ask what's the answer, I think it gets us closer and closer to the conversation of reparations here in the United States. Now that that's becoming a word that more people know and understand, and now we're getting a little context about the inequities of reparations over over history. I, I think, you know, we're getting closer and closer. To, I mean, do you think we're ready for that conversation or do we need do we need some more time? Are we ready in the United States to seriously oh, talk I about reparations? Probably not. That's probably I mean, I mean, again, the this is just based on what I see. Yeah. And I don't know. But if you know, I, I just I appreciate that's, that's that this to, stuff is getting out, you right. know, where the conversation is happening. Right. I was just about to say, I mean, it's it's great that this news is coming uh, to the fore, but um I'm not saying that I don't think that it can happen, that, you know, mm -hmm. the reparations would happen. It just, to me, it just seems like it's far off from everything that is happening right now. I hope it's not too far off because I want mine. What do you, what do you think I'm going to spend, <laughs> spend my reparations on? An airline ticket? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an airline. That's what I talk about a lot. I don't know. Sometimes I think about what it would be like to escape and say, you know, fuck the United States and all this stuff. But I don't know if if it if the reparations were the way I imagine them, just you know, getting us all back to uh, ground zero, so that we can you know, uh, like out of debt, out of you know the other sorts of financials, oppressions, the the credit scores. You know, if I have the opportunity to you know really get some money and and hire a, a couple people, oh my gosh, triloquy. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a team? You're talking about uh, you're talking about Fight Club now. Let's get started.
I'm Scott Blankenship, and this is Triloquy, Opus 107. Thank you everyone so much for being here, for all of your uh, continued support. Um, to new listeners, thank you for showing up. This is a podcast that challenges and changes the definitions and conversations surrounding that phrase, classical music. So glad to have you here. Triloquy is made possible in part by a very generous grant from the Shuttleworth Foundation of South Africa. The Shuttleworth Foundation uh, on their website Uh, It says uh, we are the Shuttleworth Foundation and we fund people who are unafraid to reimagine the world and the way we live in it. I think Triloquy definitely falls under that umbrella. So again, thank you very much to the Shuttleworth Foundation for your very, very, very generous support. I want to send a thank you to the Lakes Area Music Festival uh, for their support. I have been leading their Saturday morning uh, education streams, the LAMPcast, as they say. You can learn more information about those at lakesareamusic.org. A thank you to the National Association of Negro Musicians for your support, for having me and colleagues at your virtual conference uh, this week. I'll have uh, links to that when they uh, become available. And uh, again, once again, thank you to all of the listeners. If you would like to uh, contribute to this little project of ours, you can do that and find out more information at triloquy.org. Scott, before we get into the first movement. I just wanted to um, thank you for taking Dell and I to uh, our first Twins game last week. Oh yeah, that was um, fun. That, w- that was fun, and it actually inspired me to put something into the soundboard for you. So okay, next time, every time you take one of these neutral stances that really annoys me, I'm gonna press this button. Safe. Safe. You're playing it safe. Mm. <laughs> that mm. comes from um, the Sandlot, and you know that scene chokes me up. So I was sitting here, I was sitting here crying, putting <laughs> oh. that on the soundboard. <laughs> oh, anyway, let's get into movement one. All right, Scott. I am. I uh, appreciate the uh, pattern that you have sort of set forth for us, starting on a positive note <laughs> in this first movement. At least the effort to. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to start by giving a sharp to the 113 Collective here in the Twin Cities. They had uh, their music festival uh, going on last week. This is a new music sort of avant-garde uh, collective. Um, they uh, We went to a concert on an invitation um, from uh, Devon. Shout out to uh, Devon. Um, and uh, the, the concert featured music of Joe Horton. I'm reading here from uh, the Star Tribune. It says, Twin Cities' new music festival gives a nod to challenging and calming works. It says here, caution doesn't come easy to experimentalists, adventurous artists who thrive on sloughing, sloughing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is that, is that, let's see. Okay. In, in the moment, learning from Garrett McQueen, slough, slough. Some y'all think I'm dumb. Anyway, I thrive on sloughing off convention. Aren't the kind to hang back and gauge public opinion before moving forward with an idea. So it was perhaps predictable that the first genre to have an indoor multi-concert festival in the Twin Cities since COVID began uh, was the avant-garde. So um, uh, the concert that Dell and I saw, um, it started with a piece for um, voice and classical guitar, uh, you know, acoustic guitar. Cool. Very, you know, again, left field. 
Field and then uh, the next piece by uh, uh, Joe Horton um, was sort of a, a chamber orchestra, a few stands of strings, um, a few winds um, and some uh, projections, you know, like uh, a visual. Um, again, nice. v- very, very avant-garde, very new. That's my bag. We'll get into why that's my bag uh, later on in this opus when we get into the um, third movement. But uh, what I wanted to um, ask you, Scott, and sort of uh, get your thoughts when uh, when it comes to coming back to these concert spaces, uh, there are so many people that just want to go to a show and are excited to uh, hear some live music. Um, as it's uh, said in the uh, as it was written in this uh, article, is it safe? Is it a good thing to start to get people back in with the avant-garde, with the with the very experimental sort of you know non-hide and non-feel-good music? Do, do you, you do you think this is a good time to that's <laughs> to a, throw people into the pool in that way? That's a great question because you know when uh, the when the pandemic was going on and the lockdowns were happening, and they were talking about how to come back, you know, once the vaccine was at a rate where we could be in public again. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this very thing, didn't we? Um, uh, are people going to want to hear the canon like yeah. it was beforehand? Yeah. Are we going to be able to entice people away from all of the streaming services and the on-demand ways that they can get music? But uh, the real thing, we talked about just budgetary. Sure. Uh, what organizations are going to go with what they know and be safe so that they can get the bottom line back up? Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, are, are they going to try something that you know might left, leave some tickets unsold? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, where we were, it was... It was full. Now it was a, a small, a smaller sort of chamber uh, music hall, but there were there were no empty seats. I think the the only empty seat was next to me and someone who traveled uh, to see the show or whatever, like had their luggage there or whatever. So mm. there is an audience uh, for this new music. You know, I, I often uh, struggle even with that phrase, that sort of genre of new music, because mm-hmm. new music is new music. But I don't know. You understand what I mean? Like the the the, the so called concerto for chairs or whatever shout out to sure. katie and delaney yeah. <laughs> i i love that uh sort of thing in, in the third movement today um i'm talking to uh brandon hotelin and one of the things we get into is the fact that folks who came up through band because band music is just so much more contemporary uh, by, by by virtue of what it is right we're right. we're more used to that thing so something that is really avant-garde or left field to some people for me was a great concert experience i really in, enjoyed it um i appreciate the um the invitation from devon and i hope the uh, 113 composers collective keeps at it maybe we can uh, even get one of them on on this podcast of ours nice um actually give me a natural here real quick because i want to talk about um and a message that came in from last week okay evidently it's an addis stan uh oh, thomas this, addis yeah the person really is you know was was saying that i should give that piece that we listen to more um that i should go back and listen to the whole thing and yeah you some should respect and all that sort of thing um i did say that the clip that you played challenged me. I didn't say. <laughs> I no. I want to make clear that I yeah, didn't yeah, say. Yeah. I didn't say that I didn't like it, and I didn't say that I. You know, I think cha- being challenged is good, 
and that's how you expand your circle, you know, of things that you like. So what, just one of, one of my things, uh, again, just the, the title of, of this article, Twin Cities New Music Festival gives a nod to challenging and calming works. I mean, calling something challenging when it comes to music, I think is something subjective anyway, because sure, sure. what if I'm not challenged? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and I think, you know, we need to think more about the language we put around um, so-called new music, the avant-garde and all that sort of thing, because so do it doesn't th- have to be challenging. It's just new. It's just new. But you don't you don't think that say, I, I was challenged by this as a way to <laughs> that is a start great, a conversation about that it? is a great way for a person to talk about their reaction to music. I don't think that's a great word to put on music in a oh, oh, in oh, a seemingly a, a objective way. Got you, got you. Okay, okay well uh, to transition us from uh, this first sharp, and you know we're talking about the avant garde. I, I, the I instantly thought of a work by Andy Akiho. It's called Ricochet. It's a ping pong concerto. The first time I heard of this piece, uh, shout out to Aram Demergen down at the uh, Knoxville Symphony. He uh, was talking to me about wanting to program this for the Knoxville Symphony. He's all about uh, pushing the envelope and going mm. left field. And in addition, you know, just to the sort of uh, uh, novelty of seeing two people play ping pong on different types of instruments in front of the orchestra, I think <laughs> the actual sound is kind of cool. So I chose an excerpt here where y'all can sort of here of the two soloists are playing ping pong at this point with a couple of tambourines so you'll be able to hear that back and forth as the orchestra is playing so here's a little bit of ricochet by andy akiho as performed by the shanghai percussionist was loving life <laughs> okay now i'm gonna i'm gonna be a little stickler here what if the ping pong ball could be in time though <laughs> you know because we mm-hmm. we heard it sort of what if what if it could be on the beat uh, i i maybe the composer wrote it for it to be a little disjunct like that i i suspect that you know with a few more rehearsals and you know uh, some confidence from the ping pong soloist we could get that actually <laughs> in, in time but I don't know. I think it's cool. I don't think that that there is like a a metronome-like time from ping-pong, though. It's each one. Uh, I I respect that. I respect the fact that it's uneven like that. Because when you hear people play ping-pong, it's never on time. It's always ka-tink, kink-kink-tink. And see, and see, look at us here having a conversation uh, about a piece of so-called new music. I mean, we can't dive into Brahms three in this way. <laughs> well, I've tried. <laughs> well, we can, we can, but then we're talking about the music theory and the orchestration, and right. and for goodness' sake, who wants to talk about that? Anyway, <laughs> you have an accidental here, and it is not a flat. It is a what? It's a sharp. Um, we were talking about. Um, <laughs> oops, sorry. There we, we go. Talking about. Uh, Marin Alsop leaving Baltimore mm-hmm. and how basically she could write her own ticket. She could go to whatever opportunity she wanted. You know. And don't forget, you know, she was talking about, as we talked about last week or the week before, like, you know, I tried to move them out of that she ivory did. tower. And that yep. was a, a phrase that she used, yep. ivory tower. But she says some folks just the way they are. Yep. Anyway, she's uh, already 
standing in front of, uh, you know, new folks and, and uh, pushing forward as she likes. That's right. I was interested to run across this headline. Chicago Symphony Orchestra debuts new conductor at Ravinia. So uh, she's going to do seven concerts there. And uh, as I was doing a little bit of research on, on this, she's not actually joining their staff. She's, she's mm-hmm. heading up the festival. Yeah. And I guess that that's something that she had in the bag before she left Baltimore. But still, this, you know, there, there was no moss growing beneath uh, her feet. She went from Baltimore right into conducting elsewhere. It's something that a lot of folks, I think, don't really realize or understand is that, yes, conductors get jobs with orchestras, but more often than not, they're gone before most of the uh, orchestra rotates out, you know, on on that professional yeah. side. I mean, yeah. the 10 years, I, I think, is kind of like the, the number that a lot of uh, conductors stay with an orchestra. I, I don't mm. know of anybody who's been the, you know, conductor of an orchestra for 20, 30, 40 years. So, um, you know, folks like Marin Alsop are always in this portfolio career type of type of space where they're playing a few weeks here and doing this and that, but it's nothing to sleep on this, uh, this music festival. And I think it's sort of a, I don't know, uh, sticking your tongue out or whatever at Baltimore to, to leave to folks embracing you, you know, so, sure. so much and, and all of them. Do you think that, um, first chair players should rotate out at about 10 years? Like principal players? Well, I, I think, I think, I think it should, Rotate concert to concert, honestly, but <laughs> All right. no, I was just, but, I, you know, I you was know. just curious in the in the interest of keeping the mix fresh and the sound fresh. And... Yeah, yeah, sort of in conjunction uh, with this. When you told me about, I didn't know about um, uh, Maestro Alsop over there in Chicago, but what I had uh, read about was Jonathan Rush over in Chicago doing some things. This comes from experience.cso.org. So one of the uh, Chicago Symphony Orchestra um, uh, uh, blogs or or journals or whatever. I'm going to read here a little bit. It says, uh, when the COVID-19 crisis began, conductor Jonathan Rush recalls he, quote, was sitting at home doing nothing at all. With concerts canceled into the near future, Rush worried that he wouldn't have a career. I didn't know how the pandemic would turn out, he says. Fortunately, he had completed a widely praised guest conducting stint at the Baltimore Symphony just weeks before the COVID lockdown. A few months later, BSO management included, uh, including music director Marin Alsop asked him to join the orchestra as its, its assistant conductor. So that's how they're connected. And then uh, you have Marin Alsop over there in Chicago. Um, she's pulling up Jonathan uh, Rush uh, with her and he had his uh, debut over there. And I don't know if uh, she was in direct, um, you know, connection or, or facilitation of uh, Jonathan Rush, a, you know, budding black con, uh, conductor for folks who don't know him. I don't know if she got him that gig, so mm-hmm. to speak, but there's no denying the uh, the relationships there and the, and the connections that must have been made. So even with uh, Marin Alsop leaving Baltimore and, and going on with her life, uh, the folks she's leaving behind there, including her assistant or her, her former assistant, Jonathan Rush, making sure, you know, he's, he's getting his name out there. And yeah. there, there was somewhere in this article let me um uh let me search uh let me see sorry one second 
Okay, here we go. Yeah. So, um, Marin, this is from that same article. Um, it says, Alsup, uh, Ravinia's chief conductor and curator, told Jonathan Rush, it's 110% okay to be myself, he said. Marin never wanted cookie-cutter students. And I think that's really important to hear because so many of our uh, colleagues who studied with somebody, you know, study under folks for that sound or sure. for that technique. But that's not how Marin um, approaches this. Even all the way to um, programming, uh, we see works here by Carlos Simon, you know, who's uh, been on Triloquy and so many other folks. So, you know, I really do give um, Marin Alsup, you know, my personal sharp, my personal stamp of approval. Not that that necessarily matters so much, but yeah. we talk so much about allyship and accompliceship and all of that. Marin Alsup is doing it. She's I think it's phenomenal. It. I hope to meet her one day. She, uh, I think she went to Sphinx one year and I saw her, but I wasn't able to um, say hello to her. But when I think of uh, Marin Alsup, Scott, I think about my favorite recording of Short Ride in a Fast Machine. This What's this that? this one uh, that I'm about to play comes from a BBC Proms. The one that I listen to on my phone, I think, is the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. So many people take that piece sort of at a you know a moderato at a at an andante. As far as I'm concerned, I think it's a piece that should really move, that should really go. And I appreciate the energy uh, Marin Alsa uh, puts uh, into it every time she's on the podium. Look at me giving um, conductor praise. <laughs> the, the, this, what did this is a, a red day, a blue moon, what red did, letter day, red letter day. Anyway, here's a little bit of uh, short ride in a, in a fast machine, as conducted by Marin Alsa. A piece of music here by John Adams. First time I played that piece uh, before we started recording, Scott, you were talking about band uh, transcriptions, bandstrations, as we uh, sometimes say. My first time performing that was a band arrangement. I've, I've performed it with mm. orchestra uh, many times since, but yeah, uh, incredible uh, piece of music. You Piccolo know, or bassoon? A uh, bassoon, oh, bassoon. Nice. You know, uh, uh, and again, a piece of music that. I'm sure once upon a time was considered so-called new music, maybe on the more avant-garde when you put it next to a Beethoven symphony or, or, or whatever. So, you know, you can you can just see how much sensibilities can move if we give space to things. That That's a part of the main canon at this point. Right. You know, and yeah, that's not even me, you know, riding for it. That's just a, a matter of fact. People, people play that. People know that piece of music. Yeah. Well, who is the man that went up to uh, outer space? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, we're not going to spend no time with him, but I'm, I'm just going to throw a flag. Richard Bl Branson. That's all my timeline was talking about when I woke up this morning. And yep. all I had to say is, you know, what is the status of Flint's water? Who out here needs help that. doing their projects or whatever? So, Boy, and uh, Gil Scott Heron was sure getting attention today. <laughs> yeah, we, we need that. Okay. Really, another really quick flat here. <laughs> as we continue with the first movement, <laughs> Scott. So you did... Uh, you know, you, you, you served your country as a mobile DJ. What would typically happen if you're hosting a party, let's say a, a middle school dance, and the kids hear this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what happens next? The principal comes well, and tells you to cut it off. <laughs> well, I got, I got further into it than this. I mean, it wasn't something that they... This is instrumental. 
immediately. <laughs> this is Scott. I'm going to let it play a little bit. This is going to be bad music for a second. Mm-hmm. This is a Negro spiritual. <laughs> Say more. <laughs> this song has brought so many black communities together. No matter where you go, when you hear them talking about 99 in the 2000, if you are in line at the bar, at the bathroom, if you're outside smoking a joint, a cigarette, or whatever you do, and you hear that pizzicato and those strings, oh, it's it's time it's it's time to hit the dance floor. Okay, so as a lot of people um, may know or maybe have read. The original composers of this composition, Manny Fresh and uh, Juvenile, you know, got a little bit of a check by making a vax that thing up. Not back that ass up or back Mm -hmm. that thing up, vax that thing up. Mm -hmm. This is my question. (laughs) Who paid for it? Okay. It looked like it was an ad and it was, you know, sort of an ad for a, a black dating service, basically talking about, in essence, you know, and I'm not going to play that. I'm not going to play that one. But in essence, you know, if you want to, if you want to, you know, go out and date, if you want to meet up, make sure you're vac- vaccinated. Like it, it was basically a, a, a promo for black folks uh, to get vaccinated. I don't think that the dating app would have had a reason to point it that way unless there was some other money involved. There was some Probably. Pfizer or Moderna money involved. So do you think one of the one of the vaccine people, one of the labs, paid for this remix on on back that thing up. Do you, do you think it may go up that far? Boy, boy, we've got some real uh, Charlie Day on. It's always sunny in <laughs> Philadelphia vibes going on here. It all connects. Um, I have a problem with songs of my era being used in marketing. Oh, so and- now this is oh this is your era. <laughs> How old were you? <laughs> Go on. You don't like songs from your era. Well, um, I was talking more about uh, like that song Tarzan Boy by Baltimore or uh, uh, Your Love by The Outfield being used to sell fabric softener. Sure. Um, so I, I know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. All of you marketing people, I know what you're doing and it's not going to work. Let, you are not going to get me to buy your fabric softener just because you use the outfield. But are but are they going to get you to get your vaccine? I mean, you've already no, been they, vaccinated. Right. They, they, didn't have need, to, they didn't need this. <laughs> now, my question to you would be, do you think that it is effective for the people who were in the club in 99 and 2000? I think we're and, all I think we're all laughing at it at this point and down south vaccination rates aren't as high as they are here in Minnesota. There's right? some places down south that There's are some still like 30 30%, but yeah. anybody holding out this long did not say, oh my goodness, this this is what I needed to hear. This is what I needed to <laughs> this, hear. You know what? They're, they make a great point. <laughs> Let me get the Johnson & Johnson for the 9-9 in 2000. <laughs> Listen, okay, the marketing people, you know, and, and again, this is actually uh, Jay-Z, uh, Jay-Z, Juvenile and Manny Fresh. So it wasn't just a little $150 check, a little, you know, meal ticket no. that got this done. This was some real money, okay? Sure. Who was in the marketing room? Which DEI hire, diversity hire, was in the room and said, hey, guys, the blacks love this song the, here. The blacks, seriously? The blacks love this, and they'll hear this, and they'll love it, and and we can get, uh, we have the money to pay Manny Fresh and Juvenile, and and shout out to Mia X as well. Uh, she did uh, Lil Wayne's part, but who who is that? Is that person a friend or a foe? 
<laughs> is that person on our side? <laughs> I don't even have an anyway, opinion. shout out to um, everyone who is vaccinated. Hey. You're doing the good thing. If you're a holdout, go ahead and get vaccinated so you can smash some guy named Scott, as it said in the in the actual rap. You were named. Please, please do. <laughs> Scott said, please be vaxxed please, if you're trying to. <laughs> please, please do. Get in touch. As oh, soon as my you're gosh. Vaxxed. Okay. I wanted to get um, our little laughs out before we got to um, our final accidental for this first movement. So yeah. um, it's actually not a flat, right? It's actually a sharp. But how, how about you explain uh, what we got here? Well, uh, we're, I don't know how many opuses ago it was that I got called to the carpet a little bit for talking about how I was nervous during police stops, mm-hmm. during traffic stops. And I was trying to make the point that uh, if a police officer can make like a black man was guilty and deserved whatever torture or death sentence he got on the spot, then it can be done with anyone. And here comes this story on CNN.com. It's, uh, the headline is, Why Al Sharpton... And there it is. Man, this advertisement is killing me. Why Al Sharpton and Ben Crump are taking up the case of a white teen that was killed by police. So, the, First of all, sorry, what do you think about the headline? Because that's definitely click clickbait there. I thought that it was going to be something misleading. Mm. I thought that it was like you said, trying to appeal to just a sensational headline. And, right. and then the, the story would shake out that, you know, it wasn't quite what the headline sure. made it out to be. But this uh, young man was uh, driving home at night with a friend. Uh, it was 3 a.m. in BB, Arkansas. You said that you know yeah, this, I think, com- yeah, you know it's this community? Not, not too far from Memphis, but yeah. It's a... Uh, it's a suburb of the Little Rock area. Britton was fatally shot June 23rd by a sheriff's deputy during a traffic stop around 3 a.m. outside of a repair shop along Arkansas Highway 89. Uh, Britton was taken to... No- okay, so later that day, the sheriff sheriff's office identified the deputy and said that he had been placed on administrative leave pending the investigation. Then, on July 1st, they say that he was fired, get this, because he didn't activate the body camera in a timely way. Not because someone was murdered. He did not follow protocol and turn the body cam on. So as a result, you guessed it, there is no footage. Um, He had some transmission trouble. He was getting a uh, can to put behind the wheel of the truck so it wouldn't hit the officer's car. Mm -hmm. He was shot three times, and the, uh, the, um, the young man that was with Britton in the car at the time said that he was not given any commands like stop or get on your knees or raise your hands or anything like that. He was just shot. This is my thing. Where are all of the all lives matter people now? Right. We love people love to and and I think let me start by saying it definitely is a an issue that tends to ride that racial line. Black folks, black men in particular are disproportionately attacked and killed by policemen and the policemen overreaching what they're supposed to be doing is an issue that impacts everybody. And I think that was one of the, uh, you know, the big things that I was trying to oh, talk yeah. to a, a lot of oh, people, yeah. especially last summer, was that you should be marching as well for Black Lives Matter because this also impacts you. Police reform 
impacts you. So that's my question. Where are all of the all lives matter people now? This should, this is y'all's opportunity to shut down the freeway or to uh, protest in, in front of a, a, a police station. You don't want to do it for black lives. Maybe you'll do it for one of your own because it's a shame what these policemen are getting away with. There's a story, Scott, you know, th this is a uh, BB Arkansas. I hope we're, we're saying that right. Uh, but uh, when I was in undergraduate, so at the University of Memphis, maybe uh, 30, 45 minutes away from Memphis again, over in Arkansas, um, in the town of Marion, a guy was shot in the head while handcuffed in the back of a police car. So uh, the the story, and this I don't know if this ever made national news or anything, but the story was that he was hiding a gun and it went off while he was in the car. Okay, so you mean to tell me you did not search him? You mean to tell me that he could have gone into the police station with a, with a loaded gun? Or are y'all just making something up that makes absolutely no sense? It is pitiful. And I really, we, this that revolution needs to happen. We I talk about revolution. Reparations. We're here talking about redefining classical music, you know, back that thing up as a piece of classical music. But, you know, this 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 police brutality thing is, is really getting out of control. Even here in the Twin Cities, there are there are names that folks will never know that, right. you know, folks getting shot all the time by the police. Chris Cuomo. Uh, was dragged a little bit for his monologue. Oh, what did he say? Well, you played it. You know, Chris pop, Cuomo. Pop, pop, pop. You know, oh, just sure. wait, oh, right. that, wait until yeah. this happens in a white community. Well, here we are. And, you know, Al Sharpton, who gave the eulogy at Britain's, uh, at his funeral, uh, he said that uh, this is going to look different because it wasn't a teenager that was a child of color. Because we've always said that our white brothers and sisters couldn't fathom their child being killed by the police. The people are supposed to protect them. But that's a reality that parents of children of color literally deal with every day of their lives. What do you think is the significance? I mean, it, it can't be lost on anyone that um, Crump and Sharpton doing what they have done for decades, having that reputation as these black civil rights people. What do you think? is going to be different about this story as as we're as we're moving forward. He, you know, Al Sharpton can can get a crowd of of black folks with, you know, his ability to preach and all that stuff. I would imagine the technique would be a little different just, you know, for virtue of the fact that it's a different community. Maybe, but I think that these two men are are definitely going to get uh, I don't the word isn't street cred, but they're I think that they're going to get some props for the fact that they are doing this for a white victim, uh, even, even you know, in addition to all the work that they do. And not to say, color. of course, that they're doing it for that, but it will just be one of the one right. of the things that comes out of it, one of the conversations that comes out of it. Right, you know what I meant. Yeah. Rest in peace and, you know, thoughts and thoughts and prayers and, and you know, all of that warm thoughts to the family and, and everyone involved. I said it on the radio uh, when I was at NPR, you know, it, it got a lot of uh, attention from folks. When is my turn? You know, it, it, it seems like as bad as it is, there has to be that time when I'm going to be pulled over by the police and then I need to turn on, turn on my respectability because I don't want to die, but I shouldn't have to. And it, 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 it makes anxiety come. It, it, I'm, I'm looking for the word, not it uh, breeds, anxiety but just thinking thinking about it is something that can't be shaken off every time every single time I get in the car yeah I'm sorry that happens Garrett to um to honor um 
uh, the late Mr. Britton, uh, I thought that uh, we would transition here out of the first movement into the second movement with a piece of music by Florence Price, you know, one, one of those big names, but uh, a woman who was also uh, from Arkansas and faced her own struggles. She was lucky enough to survive. Mr. Britton um, was not, but uh, I thought we would uh, honor him and, and send positive energy and thoughts to his family and friends with a work by Florence Price, uh, Arkansas native, called On a Quiet Lake. This is uh, performed here by Laura Daniels. You know, Scott, one of the things that got, um, b before we take the second ending here, one of the things that got uh, Fred Hampton in trouble was he was learning how to get folks who weren't, who weren't black understanding the issues and bringing in the, you know, Southern states rights folks in with the Black Panthers and, and doing all that. And that's when the FBI, you know, saw this person really as a threat because he wasn't only activating black folks, he was uh, activating everybody. I feel like this could be one of those moments, you know, what if Al Sharpton in this process, Sharpton and Crump really do something or say something that activates that. And here we go with that, this phrase that I have an issue with a broader community community or a broader audience, you know, mm -hmm. and what, and as we've discussed on this podcast, what that really means is white when people talk about a broader audience. But even so, what will this mean if Al Sharpton can just activate a critical mass of white folks, you know, based on what this story is and what it lays out? I think that is possible. I think that's something that we could see. It's late Monday night. I would say if this is still in the news cycle when this drops on Wednesday, then we've got a shot. All right. Well, I guess we'll, let's, uh, let's see we'll how stay long updated. It, let's see how long it stays in the headlines. Well, um, uh, we're here in the second movement where we are going to take the second ending, a piece of music that uh, we have just been, you know, repeating over and over all week. And we're finally going to take the second ending and talk about why we love it so much. Again, uh, in the next movement, in movement three, I'm talking with Brandon Hotelin, uh about band music. And um, I was really great to see that you uh, brought in a wind ensemble composition to talk about this week. Well, I told you that I've been trying to gain an appreciation for it because, you know, I just... I just don't have that deep of a bench of uh, wind pieces that I know and recognize. Sure, you know? sure, sure. Um, the whole suites. Yeah, the second of which is the the better one, but go on. <laughs> that one landed. <laughs> well, um, I, I, I have been trying to listen to uh, more wind band selections that um, would, again, widen my circle of the things that I was listening to. and. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a piece by Joel Puckett that came across my um, Spotify randomizer, I guess. It's called That Secret from the River. And I listened to it before I went and found out about it, mm -hmm. you know, before I went and did some research so on it. So it was just a blind listen. just Yeah, yeah. And, and it turns out that it was the book Siddhartha by Herman Hesse that inspired some of this music. And there was one line in particular where Hess writes, have you learned that secret from the river, that there is no such thing as time? The river is everywhere at the same time, at the source, the mouth, the waterfall, the ferry, the current, in the ocean and the mountains. Everywhere that the 
present only exists for it, not the shadow of the past or the shadow of the future. You've always been one to appreciate words. I do. You know, lyrics and all of that stuff. When you listen to this, we'll, we'll listen to a little bit of it here. When you listen, what sorts of... Um, you know, what sorts of feelings do you have that uh, may be unique to uh, to win music? Like as we were listening earlier, one of the things I was thinking about was the music actually breathes, mm-hmm. not only mm-hmm. in a musical, heady, sort of fancy way of speaking, but literally, you know, the, the individuals are breathing, the instruments are using air, and I think you can really hear that in the performance. I do too, but the word that came to my mind as I was, you know, Radar and I are around the lake, mm-hmm. and it was maybe 10.30 in the morning, and so everything was nice and calm, and you have to admit that the wind section can indicate or inspire like this feeling of discovery. You know, the, this, this swell... Suspended symbol always makes everything extra dramatic, of course. Does that not sound like (laughs) discovery, realization, um, walking into the light? Doesn't that inspire all those ideas? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm and I'm sure you know on a uh, on an early morning walk, as you were saying, when everything is calm. If it were me, I'd have a little medicine. A little uh, disqualify me from the Olympics medicine. (laughs) So, so in all of that headspace, yeah, that's. Yeah, but he uh, there was a, another quote that I found by Puckett where um, he was talking about listening to his old compositions, mm-hmm. you know, in this whole nature of time and the way we change and all that. Um, he was listening to some of his older compositions and he he found it hard to believe that it was him that wrote it. Yeah, but in a sense, it wasn't. That's that's what he's saying that you know that was a different him mm-hmm. then sort of bringing that Theseus, the ship of Theseus idea in. Uh, even though you change over time, are you still the same composer that wrote all those pieces all those years ago? It's interesting that you say that because the piece of music that I'm bringing in, I am actually a part of the recording. So when I was, uh-huh. uh, I'm trying to think what year, maybe when I was a sophomore uh, an undergraduate at the University of Memphis, um, a composer uh, by the name of Tolga Ozdemir, I believe he's a Turkish, a Turkish composer. He was uh, there studying, I think maybe getting a doctorate and um, was commissioned uh, by the band, by the wind ensemble to write a piece of music. And he ended up uh, writing a, a saxophone concerto. So anyway, and, and thinking about band music and, and uh, doing the reading and, and stuff I did uh, for this week, I went back into those old, rec- uh, old recordings and and uh, decided I wanted to bring in the saxophone concerto. It was called Carpathia. Uh, but when I looked it up on Spotify, I saw that our recording w- was actually there. So listening uh, to this recording brought back me- memories of the rehearsal and how angry uh, uh, Craig Williams was at us, the, the conductor. And, you know, he was he was a strict guy. You know, mm-hmm. he maybe he started off my disdain for conductors. But shout out to Craig Williams. I, I actually appreciate the way he t- 
taught us to play. Anyway, um, yeah, I, it was just interesting for you to talk about, you know, listening back or thinking about a, a previous uh, version of yourself. Uh, this tune, Carpathia, again, in back in the first movement, we were talking about things that are avant-garde or left field or, or so-called challenging. challenging. Yeah, Th this was a work that... Um, I've, I always uh, put into my programming down in Knoxville at WUOT. I went and um, dug up some of my old uh, notes for uh, my radio program and found some of the uh, liner notes. Uh, so a little bit about Carpathia. Tolga Ozdemir writes, Carpathia does not symbolize any country. Instead, it stands for the joyful Balkan people who are modest enough to be proud just living life. Either happily dancing all together or arrogantly fighting to choke each other, they always can maintain such a big humoresque perspective and a big laugh to life and destiny. I think that's a really cool to thing choke to choke each other. I mean, but that's what he's saying. Like <laughs> we can dance. Sometimes they be fighting, but look, we here and we're mm. living life when we're celebrating life. I think that's a really beautiful message for all of us to uh, uh, be thinking about. Um, but yeah, the concerto itself, the piece of music itself, I think may be one that some people, not me, would categorize as a little challenging. Let's listen to a little bit of it here. Alan Rippey on saxophone. So they already tow you up for your reaction to the Thomas Addis. What do you think about this Tolga Ozdemir? I, I didn't get torn up. <laughs> what do you think about that? Just and 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 honestly, just first first listens. If you cut on your classical radio and you heard those sounds, I'm sure it would be an eyebrow raiser or a, oh, I wonder what that is. The you saxophone know. was laughing. Yeah, it was a yeah. laughing sax. I mean, I don't. That was familiar. That that's that felt. Kabalevsky-esque. Mm -hmm. Kabal yeah. Kabal sure, sure. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. There you go. It's it's funny. The um, I'll, I'll post it on the Triloquy tracks. You can check all of that out. At the end, um, Alan Rippey, you know, is doing all this crazy stuff. As, as a matter of fact, let, let me go ahead and uh, play a little bit of it. So the end is like sort of this stormy weather. The saxophone's going crazy. Listen to this. That's how the piece ends. I remember uh, during the first rehearsal, Alan Rippey goes, and of course, we're ending on the Picardy Third there. So, <laughs> so these are folks who, you know, um, can really break down this music in the traditional music theory sort of way, but it also just really uh, uh, hangs on to that tradition that band music has uh, really codified so well and always having that new sound, something different, something challenging as some folks would say but mm. if this is what you know again I mentioned I was a sophomore and undergraduate so if my idea of being a professional musician starts with sounds like these how in the world am I gonna you know come on the radio and and talk about how much I love Baccarini <laughs> I didn't have my volume up there we go <laughs> you know like think about that for a second if that is what young musicians are hearing at the very beginning of their training going and you know really acting like Vivaldi is just everything has to be a little challenging I'll use the word in that way you know what do you think who says Vivaldi is everything 
the industry, you know, and let's mm. and, and maybe let's not say Vivaldi, but you know what the radio stations, uh, what the radio stations play don't, and what the orchestras play for that matter don't really reflect those sorts of sounds. But there are you know uh, hundreds, thousands of musicians for whom the beginning of the journey sounds like that. You know, mm. where, where where are the spaces validating those sounds? Okay, it, well, it's not the orchestras. Who can it be? We also get several new recordings of the Four Seasons every year. Right. Because <laughs> we need so, another one. <laughs> well, maybe they found other notes. I don't, I don't right. know. Right. Yes, yes, of course. Is it, of course. <laughs> that's one thing a 400-year-old art does is change. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but but you get my point. Right. That there are, I, yeah, you know, I a do. lot of people with that in their ear. Of course. And when we're pushing for change, that is our normal. So our so my left field, Scott, can you imagine my avant-garde? <laughs> mm, I can imagine <laughs> That'd it. That'd be yeah. something else. Anyway, so uh, as we uh, transition here uh, into the third movement, once again, I have the honor of speaking with Dr. Brandon Hotelin. He is um, uh, on faculty, uh, tenured faculty down at Abilene Christian University in Texas. Uh, we talk about um, something called the list. So long story short, in many states, music that uh, band directors can program for their students for competition, contests, and that sort of thing. It has to come from this specific list. So Brandon is working on uh, decolonizing that list. I even challenge him, you know, what does it look like to just get rid of the list? So uh, we get into some of that. But uh, he, he also talks about some black band composers where we, we know uh, Margaret Bonds and William Grant Still and all mm -hmm. those folks where there are a number of black folks who wrote band music specifically. So uh, Brandon talks a little bit uh, about that, but we actually start our conversation sort of on the same lines of, of this new music and what band, specifically wind ensemble, symphonic band, has trained so many people to hear and think about when we use the phrase uh, classical music. So to transition into the third movement, I wanted to uh, bring up another uh, cool piece of music from my days as a, a, a band player. There's a composer named Stephen Bryant, and he wrote a, a work called Ecstatic Waters. It, it joins wind ensemble with electronics and it's just um, this sort of metal piece maybe you know to a, a literal uh, extent and uh, one that I've been spending a lot of time with thinking about bands so uh, here's an excerpt from Ecstatic Waters by Stephen Bryant and here's my conversation with Dr. Brandon Hotelin. Yeah, well, it's it's at the heart of the wind experiences. It, it's in our DNA, uh, the search of the new and the acceptance and the willingness to really go there on the behalf of the composer. Mm -hmm. um, in And it's been unfortunate, and it's been one way in which the band has been set apart from some of the other large, you know, legacy ensembles is that in the band world that's what we do and in other worlds that's really not what they do there yeah um yeah new music is not uh appreciated i heard a story uh from the composer uh that shall be nameless 
but he said that uh, one of the great orchestras in the country was recording his first symphony. The recording won a Grammy. And he was asked what he felt when this, uh, when this recording of his first symphony won a Grammy. And he said, well, the orchestra really couldn't play it and the conductor didn't know the score. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's fascinating. <laughs> Perhaps his music withstood a little bit of that. Um, but that just not, that would not have happened, you know? Uh, and later this composer wrote a really important work for wind ensemble that, you know, people write their dissertation on people perform. It's been done all over the world. It's a really important piece. And, and if you're going to do a piece of music, you know, the conductor, it, it's part of who we are in our field. We're going to take it, that responsibility very seriously. And we're going to enter it uh, we're going to try to to dissect everything we can know about the piece, everything we can know about the composer. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the Eric Leinsdorf, you know, be the composer's advocate. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's not to say that uh, some of the Western European music doesn't make it through. As I was flipping through my own band uh, Rolodex of recordings today, yes, there's all of that new music, but there's also works that Stravinsky wrote that has wins only that I made it to in uh, in in my development. All the way as far back as Beethoven and Mozart, there's wind music that can be. Um, funneled in there as well. I wonder what's your relationship with uh, some of the so-called traditional uh, works when it comes to uh, band and, and teaching band. Is it important for your students to know the Dvorak Serenade? Is, is that uh, an important part of the process from your perspective? So, so wind bands, you know, go back hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. You know, we, most of the time we will really start in the Renaissance and we'll go to Venice and we'll talk about Gabrielli. We'll talk about the wind sections as they started to develop in the early Baroque period. Um, but those consorts of wind musicians, you know, the weights in England and the harmony music as it started to develop, you know, wind as the wind instruments themselves developed, the ensembles developed, and so consorts and then groups of, of different instruments. So yeah, as part of my training, you know, I learned all about music all the way back to, you know, uh, Gabrielli. Mm -hmm. And so of course that makes it into what my students need to know because, you know, one of the oldest, if not the oldest musical institution in the United States Founded in 1798 is the United States Marine Band. You know, it's older by decades than mm -hmm. the New York Philharmonic or the Boston Symphony. It's a really, it's happened alongside of the development of the orchestra and the choir. But um, obviously, it, the pathway has just been different. Yeah. So, yeah. so, but going back to what you were talking about, is it important that we know about the Dvorak Serenade? Absolutely. You know, but Dvorak was writing in response to an admiration of the Mozart Grand Partita. And then, you know, you've got composers now writing in honor of those. You know, you've got Jonathan Dove figures in a garden and, and other composers writing in response to these uh, harmony music or chamber music ensembles. So which led to Frederick Fennell at the Eastman School and mm -hmm. Cecil Effinger and Hugh McMillan at Colorado in the 40s and 50s in the development of this wind ensemble concept that what we were going to do is 
no longer have one version of what we're going to do where it, it it's basically well we've got 60 people in a band or 100 people in a band it's going to play the same music now we're going to flex and we're going to move around and uh one per part or exactly what the composer had in mind yeah yeah and and just for folks who may not know when you're talking about one per part you're talking about one musician playing one line on the score i feel like people think about bands and they think about a sea of clarinet players all playing the second clarinet part when so much of this repertoire requires that individual musical responsibility that we also see from um wind sections in in orchestras i feel like that's that's one of those um one of those ideas that doesn't really go to folks that that doesn't make it to folks who you know put the orchestra above the band or the wind ensemble and what what we're trying to do in these ensembles is obviously train our students for the widest variety of careers they might have Mm -hmm. um you know as a horn player it's really important to me that my students play first part and learn what a melody is and how to carry a tune you know second part is a really interesting set of ears to have. Uh, third and fourth, I mean, you know, playing a bass line, you know, so even in a horn quartet, you're teaching your students to hear and to play with different sets of ears. Yeah. And and really thoughtful directors. And, and as you're going through, people are playing different parts, playing different things, you know, all over the place. So you're not just learning one one way to do it. You're learning how to listen and participate in a variety of ways. And yeah. think about the the wind ensemble. Uh, if you inflate that to a symphonic band and you've got a huge amount of people, well, that's really just, uh, it's got inside of it, a jazz band, a big band. Sure. You yeah. know, you've got all sorts of other ensembles kind of living around inside that group. So you can do brass chamber music, woodwind chamber music, percussion chamber music um, with the forces that you're going to have just kind of showing up on a regular basis. And so that's why, you know, in the 50s and forward, we started really experiment with flexible instrumentation. And what would it be like if just uh, if we just did the music one per part, as you say, you know, or with judicious doublings here and there. Mm -hmm. But the idea is giving the students the opportunity to learn music so that no matter what they might face one day, they're going to be able to do that. Considering the history of wind band and wind music and the way that it's evolved in, in such an incredible way, and here in the United States, at least only in, you know, 60, 70 years, I wonder what are your ideas surrounding the lack of professional opportunities for band folks? There are the military bands, there are a couple of uh, standalone professional ensembles, but what do you think is in the way of, you know, every city having a professional wind ensemble, uh, symphonic band, just like most larger cities have in orchestras, even some of the smaller ones. What do you, what do you think standing in the way of that? Well, you know, I, I don't, that's, that's a little outside of my knowledge domain as well. I'm just, I'm grateful that we do have the bands that we have. I think yeah. that some, in some ways, bands are about community. Mm-hmm. And we have many community bands. We have things that are called new horizons bands, which are made up of, largely 
um, older Americans, older older people who are learning instruments, maybe again that they haven't played in 50 years or so, or learning instruments for the very, very first time. So it's about the community. It's, it's also about the music for sure, but I think hand in hand, equal parts. It's about being together and experiencing the joy that comes with putting something together that you couldn't do by yourself. Yeah. I think for for band, I think that culture is one of the things that distinguishes what we do uh, from perhaps other uh, institutions, although not all, certainly. Um, but, you know, certainly British brass bands have this tradition as well, that, you know, this convivial, okay, we're going to get off work and, and that each factory or each town is going to have a yep. band, you know, that they yep. go and they perform in. So I, I think it just has to do with more with what the goal is. Um, is the goal to perform music at the absolute highest level, regardless of, you know, the cost, well, okay, well, then we need to hire a professional this or a professional that. Perhaps we need to have a board. And then once you have this kind of oversight, it takes away from this idea that we're doing this ourselves. And then, you know, I know some orchestras would love to not have to answer to a board when it came down to what music <laughs> yeah. they program or, you know, what music they'd like to program or how they'd like to present the music or how often they'd like to present the music or, or whatnot. So, and in, in many ways, the band, the way that it grew up is just free from most of those um, hindrances. Yeah, those parameters. I, I had actually forgotten about community bands, but yeah, I was, I've been a part of, I think, three community bands in my life. And I don't know, maybe it's a, a larger conversation, but you know, what you've made me think about is the idea of uh, folks who have, you know, studied an instrument or have even played professionally, the idea that joining or being a part of a community band is something lesser, maybe even those uh, uh, professionals uh, coming in with their secondary instruments. I, I don't know. I, I feel like uh, when it comes to the development of community bands, we have to start talking about the fact that it's seen as something less than, and it could be so much more than that, especially if, you know, folks brought their A game and their principal instruments in, into those spaces. I, I think it really has to do with your perspective. I don't think if you were to talk to the people who are in community bands, they think of themselves as lesser. Mm -hmm. In fact, <laughs> of quite not. the opposite. You know, what, what a professional orchestra is there to do and what their goal is, is different. You know, when I want a very excellent meal in Chicago, I know that I can, I can hit up Alinea, I can go to, and that's going to be an expensive night that's going to uh, involve every one of my senses, it's going to be a clever it's going to be a fantastic experience. And I look mm -hmm. forward to those. I can also go to the publican and sit at a table with all of my friends. And, and it's a very different experience. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's less. There's, there's no less. It just means it's different. And, and yeah. I think, you know, you look at any of our phones or our, our Spotify playlists, you know, I listen to Mahler and I listen to Sousa. And I listened to Jennifer Higdon and I listened to, and I'm a member of a woodwind quintet. So I have a lot of affection for Jennifer Higdon and, and mm -hmm. many, you know, people who write for wind quintet. 
it's there is no difference to me, and I don't think to most people who are really kind of active and engaged in this. Um, yeah, I'd love to play Mahler Eight. Mahler Eight would be fantastic because you have to have so many people in just the right way. You have to have a facility that can handle all of that. That would be a tremendous experience. But I have had tremendous experiences playing at retirement homes. Yeah. With yeah. a pickup group of students, uh, one of the greatest concerts I ever was a part of was at a place called The Resort in Mesa, Arizona. Several of my friends from Arizona State University, um, we had a project where we had to do something uh, in, in the realm of social engagement. Uh, and this was the brainchild of Gary Hill, the director of ensembles there, uh, my teacher. Every single student performing in an ensemble had a social engagement project. And so I scooped up a whole lot of people and I said, okay, let's do this. Let's go do a, an old style community band concert. And we partnered with, uh, they had a big band at the resort and the youngest member of this big band was in his seventies. Yeah. And they swung like crazy. They were amazing. And, you know, so again, getting back to what you're, your topic was, I don't think that people who really are looking for authenticity or people who are looking for community, I don't think they see what they're doing as lesser at all. Yeah, I, I, I really love that that metaphor, especially of of the restaurants, because, you know, again, being a tenured member uh, of an orchestra once upon a time, I've, I've been very aware of the idea, even in those spaces that, oh, well, I know this person is a sub, but they haven't actually won an audition. So, you know, those tiers going all the way down to the community ensembles. But I, I really love that metaphor. You've inspired me to uh, look up my own community ensemble. Maybe I'll have to uh, pull out pull out my reads and stuff and see, <laughs> see well, what and happens I, in that space. And I know most bands anywhere are going to be very excited to have a bassoonist of your caliber mm -hmm. knocking on their door. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit um, about the list. And uh, for folks who don't know, uh, what is the list? What are we talking about when we talk about the list? And at best, well, the, the, we're going to have a, I personally have a lot of critiques of it, but, you know, at best, what are its intentions? Well, what is sure. it, what is it there for? So can I back up a little bit and just talk about why, you know, perhaps I'm here and why I'm, oh, please, I'm passionate yeah. about these things? Because so part of the DNA of the band and band directors is searching for new repertoire. And in 2017, I gave a presentation with some colleagues at the Midwest International Band and Orchestra Clinic about repertoire that we were passionate about and specifically pa uh, passionate because they were from underrepresented composers. Yeah, and, for, um, and, and sorry, and for folks who don't know, the Midwest Clinic is, you know, what I think about as the who's who of band. Every year, you know, everyone goes to Chicago to, you know, share ideas and hear performances and that sort of thing. And eat at Alenia and other restaurants, right? Um, <laughs> we have a lot of, we have a lot of, um, and, and it was originally a publishing and a trade show, importantly, mm. you know, that clinic in particular. So that you put on by these publishers who are pushing out the new music for the education market. Um, 
gosh, we could go back to the 20s and talk about the progressives and the advent of the school band movement, but we won't. Hmm. So the lists are a part of our assessment and they're a part of how we uh, organize ourselves. Mm -hmm. So when after I gave that um, presentation in Chicago, there was a woman who stopped me on the sidewalk outside of the hotel. And she said, I can't believe that I've spent my entire career teaching music and being a band director. And I've never performed music by a female composer. Yeah. And she was shocked and she was just she couldn't. I mean, she thought she was doing what she should be doing and doing the music and she was doing a great job but it had never occurred to her that women wrote music and that yeah. she might, might perform that music with her students. And that as a woman, that might be impactful to her and to her female students. So uh, everybody was really excited about this clinic. They learned all about this great music and they wanted to do it. But one of the people came up to me afterwards and said, this is great, but you know, this music isn't on the list, so I can't play it. And that's when it really started to hit me. And so in, in 2018, uh, we started this organization called On The List, which is the goal is to put music by underrepresented composers on state music lists so that when it comes time for these important uh, music performance assessments or large group performance evaluation or concert contest or concert band festival, they're called very many things. But when it comes time for the directors to choose music for these events, they are they're going to find representation on these lists. And right mm -hmm. now um, it's getting better for sure. But but um, back when we started, it was it was pretty dire. So that's that's the whole idea of on the list is um, we, we love this music. We want the very best music available for our students but it has to be on the list, you know, yeah. and, and it has to be on the list for the, for the public school teachers to choose it. It has to be on the list of the college band directors to teach their students this music. It has to be on the list of the distributors and the publishers so that they will put their economic weight and, and important behind this music and these composers. So there's, there's a lot of different entry points to the on the list project. Uh, but the one that we focus on mostly is going through the submission process and making sure that that these composers can find their music on the list and so that directors can choose it. When it comes to and I, I love the work that you and your team have done with um, on the list project.org, because, you know, one of the first questions, you know, the, the, the most common question in my inbox is who are these composers or, or what is this music that we should be listening to or advocating for? You know, there's a link um, on this website and shout out to Rob Deemer and the uh, Institute for Composer Diversity, everyone over there, where you can find all of this band music by composers of color, uh, by women. It's, it's all there and it's out there. Um, what are the other parts, um, at least in your, uh, in your experience with this work, what are the other parts of the conversation? We have all of the music. Band directors can, you know, once this music gets on the list, opt in to uh, including it. I wonder what are some of the um, other conversations, maybe even the bigger conversations surrounding this project, you know, advocating for, um, you know, anti-racism in other ways in the band world. 
let me go back to my doctorate and I was taking a wind band history class. Wayne Bailey was teaching it. And I heard the name James Reese Europe. And I'm a band director. I'm getting my doctorate in, in conducting. And I'd never heard this name before. And so he mentioned, oh, by the way, James Reese Europe, the Harlem Hellfighters took jazz to France. This is why the French are crazy about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, okay, let's move on. And I thought, well, okay, as good of a job as he did in that class period of teaching James Reese Europe, I thought there is more to this story. So I really dug deep. And there's a fantastic biography by Reed Badger called A Life in Ragtime. Hmm. And uh, it's one of the very best biographies I think I've read. And the index is extraordinary. And uh, Reed was a professor at the University of Alabama. And James Reese Europe was a very important musician. He, he started the Clef Club and the Tempo Club. And he gave people like Fletcher Henderson and Paul Robeson. Mm-hmm. And Bojangles Robinson, he helped organize the beginnings of their careers. Um, he was doing $100,000 in uh, contract work for musicians in New York in the, in the 19-teens. Uh, um, he organized the very first uh, concert of Negro music in, mm-hmm. at Carnegie Hall. In two thousand, excuse me, in nineteen twelve, yeah, he was a major player in New York City. He was a really important person, and I think part of the allure of him was his last name. It was Europe, and so he called his groups European, and all mm. the people <laughs> in New York got really crazy. You know, the Stuyvesants and the Fishes and the Astors and the Vanderbilts and the, you know, they got crazy because they're going to have a European orchestra at their right. event. And uh, so World War I comes along, uh, Langston Hughes and others decide that what we really need is a regiment of our own to go fight for our country. So the New York 15th is created. Uh, when they get to France, finally, um, because of Jim Crow, uh, they're, they're not allowed to fight for the United States. So mm-hmm. they basically were given to the French. And, and so this amazing band that James Reese Europe had put together to go uh, represent the United States and, and actually to fight. He was an infantryman, too. Um, they were given to the French. And so there's these war monuments and memorials in French, in France, dedicated to them. But we don't know as much about them today. Um, Anyway, we could have a whole episode about James Reese Europe and his music, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he. The, but that that experience of learning about this amazing American musician and not knowing very much about him, and most of the time, still, I'm the person in the room that knows the most about him, and I don't mm-hmm. think that's I don't think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we need to do a better job of knowing our own history. I mean, he is one of the most important band leaders that there has been um, and composers and music entrepreneurs and uh, contractors. Um, so what else is there, you know, <laughs> throughout history? Who else have we missed mm-hmm. along the way? Well, I get to Abilene Christian University where I'm teaching now and in, in my first semester. Uh, we're getting ready for a concert. My colleague, Stephen Ward, 
uh, says, okay, we're going to do this piece by William Grant still called from the Delta. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh, I don't know that piece. You know, let's, let's go. And um, it's an amazing piece of music. And I get into William Grant still, and I realized, gosh, he wrote a lot of band music and it was premiered by the Goldman band. And it was, you know, alongside the works of Copeland and others. Why don't I know about this music? Well, I didn't play it in college and Mm -hmm. and nobody really, you know, it's not in music history class. We don't study band in music history. We study orchestra, we study choir and we study Catholicism. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we don't, we don't study band music that often. So it really has been, you know, since the the doctorate and and you know the past decade going through what do we what did we miss along the way what can we add to these lists and what can we bring to our students because i believe that from the delta it's a three movement 10 minute piece maybe nine minute piece it's as important and as rich as the holst suites right and in fact one of the one of the things that i do is i'll program them side by side. You know, here's a three, mo- three movement work uh, written in the forties and, and I'll do the first suite in E flat, which is nine minutes and written, you know, in the early part of the 20th century. And it's fascinating uh, counterpoint to have these two different perspectives, you know? Yeah. 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 Music just as a means. And that's off that that's been my charge lately, especially when it comes to uh, challenging, you know, what they're calling critical race theory in these classrooms. You know, I feel like music teachers, um, even band directors have a unique opportunity, you know, to actually teach this history with music as the guide, Uh, especially when you're talking about American music. There's no way to not talk about gender. There's no way to not talk about race, especially when you're going back into these decades and talking about who wrote the music, where was it coming from, where uh, where it was being performed. There are all kinds of of conversations there. But to get back, um, you know, to the list, uh, sure. You know, but b- before we uh, begin to wrap up, I have to push back a little bit. I have to challenge a little bit. So why isn't the initiative um, get rid of the list instead of trying to put more things on the list? And, and you know, I ask that because I know how you uh, we, we talked a little bit about uh, the, the word quality and the use of the word quality. I, I make uh, similar arguments surrounding the word excellence. What are we actually talking about when we talk about musical excellence or, or, or even black excellence? So you right. know, from, my, from my perspective, this list is a means of maintaining some sort of idea of musical quality. What, what, what good is the existence of this list? Why aren't we just pushing to get rid of it altogether? Well, I'll say this, not every state has a list. Um, And in different states and in different organizations, the the role of the list is slightly different. Mm -hmm. Um, In some states, you have to perform a march or a corral as kind of a warm-up piece Mm -hmm. and and then choose two pieces from the list at different grade levels. And the grade levels correspond mostly to difficulty with... Uh, grade one being beginners and grade five in Texas being the highest level. And in some, some States they go to grade six being, you know, professional level music. Mm -hmm. So in in a lot of ways, the list has been seen um, as just 
to kind of organize things. We're just going to listen to all the grade one bands because it wouldn't be fair to evaluate a group, you know, playing um, Lincolnshire Posey and Symphonic Metamorphosis and then listen to a group playing, you know, all the pretty, you know, horses and and the Red Balloon and, sure, and sure. you know, Atlantis and some some of the other beginning band pieces. So we're just going to organize things by difficulty. Um, grade one band piece might only be restricted to the first five notes that they learn. And for a director looking for music for their ensemble, you really need that because, okay, they don't know but five notes, but what music can we play? And they go to the list and they find that music there. And it's a very helpful thing mm -hmm. to help them plan their curriculum. Um, and I hear your point, and I've had this conversation with colleagues, too, about why don't we just abolish the lists or why do we need the lists? Don't we trust the expertise and the professionalism of teachers to choose what's appropriate? Um, and, and I think that there's just so many uses for the list. It, it isn't uh, it's not a monolith. It's not it's yeah. not one thing. So I do see your point and I agree with it in that it can be a limiting factor but it can also be a very handy, helpful tool. So I, uh, rather than throw the baby out with the bathwater, I think, you know, this is kind of my personality is if you want to see something changed, we'll get involved, get in yeah. there and don't just say, we need to destroy this institution <laughs> that's been around for decades. You know, it does, it, it needs a little care. It needs a little um, attention. Yeah. You're making me think of a lot of things when, when you, when you mentioned, you know, um, con we haven't uh, spent a lot of time talking about contests, but when you talk about, you know, the chorale or the march and then your main piece, one thing that you uh, made me think about for the first time in many years, I remember my senior year in high school, uh, my band took the piece of music um, Haven Dance that a lot of the band folks know um, into contests, which at least back in those days in Tennessee was a, a great five piece. But the work that we started with was neither a, a, a march or a chorale. The band director was a third trumpet in the Memphis Symphony. So he chose some sort of overture thing or something that he thought would match that well. Well, because of that, the entire performance was put into um, the grade three category, despite that grade five piece of music, you know? So I, I think about that. And and I think about everything that surrounds um, contests and the subjectivity of music, uh, people's opinions manifesting in ways that actually impact students and maybe even the careers of, uh, of some of these teachers. So I understand that, you know, we can't always throw out the baby with the bathwater. Maybe I'm not saying that we should abolish contests because I feel like those are very important experiences for students to be under a little bit of pressure and, and the responsibility of making sure that you're playing your part and, and being part um, of a whole. But I wonder, you know, what are, are some of your ideas about an imagined future for these contests, really breaking down some of these rules and opening, uh, opening everything up? Is there a, a future of band contests that is actually more useful than harmful when it comes to, again, the pressure of those band directors to get that one rating, the pressure um, that these judges must feel, you know, in giving in giving these ratings? It feels like a, a really tightly wound knot of a lot of things that we could loosen up and, and look at when it comes to that part of it, specifically the contests. Mm -hmm. Well, and again, every state is different. You know, in in Texas, uh, 
when you have to pick your two pieces from the list, you're depending upon your classification of school size, that that tells you what you have to do in terms of the level of difficulty of the music. When I was teaching in Georgia, we didn't have that. So we could choose um, if we wanted to go with our groups in grade six, we had to choose two pieces that were from the grade six list mm-hmm. and then play a chorale or a march as a warm up. Um, and that just kind of worked, you know. In Texas, it's a little bit differently in that you don't have to play two pieces from the same level of difficulty, um, you know, especially middle schools and, and younger bands and high schools. There are different rules about what you have to do. Mm-hmm. And so that's the reason why every every state list is a little bit different. Every organization's rules are a little bit different. There's not kind of a a national body that governs this. And so there's not kind of this national, oh, we just do this and fix the whole country all at the same time. So that's why we have people in all sorts of different states and we and we work with people all over to kind of, okay, well, what's the problem that you're dealing with where you are and how can we address that? To be yeah. honest, it's happening so organically and so quickly, uh, partly because what we were talking about earlier the, in the band culture, we just embrace newness and new music mm-hmm. so readily. So now that more composers are finding publishers or finding a way to get their self-published music out there where we know about it and people are adding this music to their state lists and then people choose it. And if you were to look at the composition as Rob Deemer does to the orchestras, um, professional orchestra seasons, you know, it's going to take way less time for school bands and orchestras and choirs to become more diverse and more inclusive, just because there's, that's who we have now. Those are the composers that are alive and writing for our groups. We will, there's never going to be a time where the host suites are in danger. You know, the the great (laughs) classics of the past will be preserved. Of course they will be. Um, And no one is saying that we need to just stop playing this music, you know, oh, we need to stop doing what we were doing and restart with this whole other paradigm. Um, I think we're coming up with kind of these arbitrary percentages of, oh, this season really needs to be this percentage of whatever. I think for school teachers that are trying to do the very best teaching they can do with their students and reach their students, what we're discovering is once once a teacher has the idea that they love their students and they want to reach their students, they they reach into themselves and say, how can I do that? And they realize that repertoire is a major way to do that. And then you find that for the past several years, one of the most performed pieces in the state of Texas is an arrangement of Arturo Marquez, Denzel number no. two. Yep. And I don't think that's by accident. It's an amazing piece of music and it speaks to a culture and it speaks to a geographic region. And it's a part of who we big, you know, capital W we are, Mm -hmm. and it's just going to take care of itself. And so once we kind of grease the wheels of the, of the machine as it were, and, and these composers become more uh, able to get their music published and they get the pieces on the list and we as college teachers do a better job of programming and being more inclusive and intentional about 
who we are programming and who we are championing. You know, I think it's it's going to be fast. It's going to, and we've already seen that that it's begun this kind of rapid shift. Um, band directors are are they like to be considered part of the cool kid club. And right mm-hmm. now, if you're not programming, you know, Jennifer Jolly and Jennifer Hickton and uh, Kevin Day and Omar Thomas. And, you know, there's, I could list composers, yep. for, you know, forever, you know, you're not part of the cool kid club anymore. And, and people don't want to be left out of that. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's been encouraging to see some of the older generation too really step up and, and be on board of this. It's not just the young uh, teachers. It's, it's teachers of all ages and levels that are kind of discovering this music and realizing, oh, okay, I think I heard this piece once. I'm going to give it a chance and, and see if this is a good fit for my students. So it, it's, I think it's going to happen and it already is happening very quickly. So it, it's a really encouraging time. And to get back to a question that we talked about earlier, this is the reason why I'm so glad that we don't have boards of directors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and donors and the symphony guild, you know, to, because when you've got, all those support groups can be very helpful, but they can also be um, just one more layer that has to be considered um, and, and could potentially be obstacles to this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, as we wrap up here, I'm going to include in the description of this uh, a link to um, on the list project.org. But, you know, I don't take for granted that there are so many people listening who have no proximity to band or the band world, maybe have no idea half the things we're talking about. Uh, I wonder what uh, resources uh, you could throw out to those folks, to the person who has, you know, taught viola at a conservatory for for 30 years. How can they uh, be introduced to what is band, this band world that we both come from? Well, you know, I think that any person who's been a professional musician knows what an amazing program of military music we have in this country. Mm-hmm. Um some of the most accomplished and, and decorated musical ensembles are in Washington, DC, and they're attached to the Marines and the Navy and, you know, army. And, and they're uh, it's an amazing, you know, one of the things that I've been waiting for as we've established the space force is all of us want that space force band. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're ready, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, because it's been such an integral part of our country's history. And, and what the Marine Band has been doing about uh, publishing and one of the things they did during the pandemic is they said, oh, well, you know, school bands might not be able to play Pomp and Circumstance this year. So here's a recording for you to play. Mm. And, and they just posted it. And uh, it's been amazing, you know, and they're going through right now the works of John Philip Sousa and releasing critical editions for free which is an amazing gift to the profession. And, and all of the service bands in different ways have found ways to give back to their communities in really meaningful, impactful ways. So I think that's, when we talk about the professional ensembles, and I'm not just talking about the ones in Washington, I'm talking about the post bands and, and all over the country, we're very fortunate to have the Marine, um, the Marine band, but we're very fortunate to have military music programs. Mm-hmm. The college band has been a surrogate for professional ensembles as well and have had 
decades of of long, uh, you know, uh, seasons of performances to the audiences. And so most of the time, uh, even a small school will have a pretty good band, you know, when I'm talking about university level, if they don't have an orchestra, you know, it's much more common in in the United States for a group to, to have an accomplished band program more than a, than an orchestra. But, you know, again, not to diminish, you know, new horizons ensembles, community groups. I think what we're going to see coming out of the pandemic is a longing for people to join things and to be a part of community events. Um, and, and I think a band is a great way to do that. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the last question I'll throw at you, you know, we're here talking uh, mid-July across the country. There are many band directors who will be going into their classrooms for the first time, first year band directors. You know, uh, I'm thinking about, you know, again, your passion for teaching teachers. What are your words uh, in closing to all of those folks who are, you know, embarking on the journey of being a band director, a band teacher for the very first time, what words of encouragement do you have for them? Well, just today, um, the New York Times published, I think an opinion piece by a guy named Adam Grant, uh, where he talks about a concept of collective effervescence, which Mm. is kind of gets to the joy of, of doing things in groups. I don't think that there's ever been a time where we need large ensembles and community engagement. We just need to be together. We have not been able to be together and it's uh, it, for valid reasons. But as we approach the, the end of the pandemic in this country, and we must acknowledge that we're not there at the end and we're not, you know, uh, the whole the globe is not in the same situation, unfortunately, right. as, as right. the United States. But as we approach the end of the pandemic, being together with our students and seeing the smiles on their faces and letting them see our smiles is such an important, vital, crucial thing. And the joy that we get to have learning and performing music with one another um, is, is going to be even more meaningful perhaps than it was before. So let's go, you know, let, you know, um, get your instrument back out, you know, and, and find some people to play with. Um, I know that uh, I cannot wait to see my students here in a few weeks once we get started. And I would imagine most band directors are exactly where I'm actually think there are a, a couple strings in there, but I just wanted to make sure that I gave a little bit of room to the music of James Reese Europe. He was a name that uh, I didn't know, but apparently was, you know, really influential when it came to the, when it comes to the uh, early stages of band music in the United States. Um, you know, as, as Brandon uh, talked about in that interview, um, military bands 
were before any of the American orchestras. You yeah. know, that is, that yeah. is a classical tradition that I think, um, aside from, uh, and, and in addition to what we talk about, uh, highlighting more orchestral music by women and black folks and people of color, I think we all, uh, the whole entire industry, especially radio, but uh, schools and, and, and everywhere uh, when it comes to so-called classical music, I think everyone can do a better job of lifting up band music because there's a strong tradition there. And there's even... Um, some blackness and other sorts of diversity uh, to learn and discover within it. You know, uh, Brandon talked about how uh, when James Reese Europe was writing music, William Grant still himself was the one arranging it for bands specifically. So um, I, I think it's it's something that uh, I'm, I'm going to be spending more time thinking about. As, as we talked about, Scott, before uh, we cut on the mics, it reminded me of why I fell in love with it all in the first place. You know, these new sounds and learning to play my bassoon in many different ways. And then, you know, as I uh, went forward in my career, you know, uh, being an orchestral musician sort of uh, closed the box, made the box a little smaller as far as what the sounds were. Mm. And then, unfortunately, in many regards, you know, getting into radio closed that up even more. So I just want things to go into the opposite direction. I want more things to be accepted and and more you know challenging so-called challenging sounds to be a part of what is just normal and i think that's how we're gonna um, move forward before we get into um the fourth movement scott um one part you know brandon and i talked for about an hour and a half i couldn't get the whole uh, interview in there but one of the things that uh, we talked about i think even off mic was the concept of tenure uh brandon talked about his tenure process being a part of the tenure process of other folks in in academia and and how stressful and sometimes problematic it is do you think uh the concept of tenure is something that should uh last forever should tenure have tenure you know hmm. is there any job that someone should really have for 30 40 years especially in music when we consider how quickly things change and how you know much catch-up we have to do when it comes to acknowledging that change? sure we touched on that thinking about uh you know should orchestra members rotate right. out every so often right know, just to keep things but when when you say tender I, ten, tender tenure i immediately think about all of the professors that got tenure before money was, you know, before the, um, it, it's kind of hard to get tenure now, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a, a lot definitely of, a process. Yeah, A lot of adjunct professors and everything. And I think that there's a lot of professors who are just sitting on the biscuit, not having to risk it, you know. And my question is, I, you know, I think about one of my professors, uh, Dr. Knepfler, he was a great guy, but he was also, you know, 85. Yeah, yeah. And I just don't know what uh, their how they would embrace the new. I don't I don't want to say an older person can't embrace the new. That's not what I'm after. Right, That's right. not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, is that you do tend to get sort of entrenched, right? Yeah, yeah. When you have one sort of leader or one sort of person in power for a long time. Now, the other side of that coin is you talk about all these adjunct professors. So many of these universities take advantage of the fact that they can hire someone adjunct, maybe for, you know, multiple years and then pull the rug up under them at the last minute. So yep. at the same time, I understand the protection of, of tenure in uh, academic uh, spaces, but 
I don't know. And it's like, like I said, it's two sides of the coin. Sometimes yeah. I think that we need to really critique the idea of it and everything that we make people do to, you know, teach at these universities. But also it's a protection for a lot of people. So mm. anyway. All right. Well, let's get into this fourth movement. Scott, as you know, uh, I've been pulling from the from the repertoire to find uh, my trills. So this yep. one this one comes from the uh, the uh, band world. This is uh, at the end of the uh, second military uh, suite by uh, Holst. <laughs> little trill there you know and it's I've, a good one I've, I've had the honor of playing that again the second suite is the superior suite fight me about it no nah, i'm gonna agree with you <laughs> all right so we were talking about um tenure uh what i wanted to spend the triloquy talking about today was in response to all of the news about nicole hannah jones so do you want to um do you know the gist of it do you want to uh, catch the people up basically um she was uh the person that headed up the 1619 project mm-hmm. for the New York Times. She was shooting for tenure at a North Carolina school, right? Yeah, was, yeah, uh, University of North Carolina. Yeah, uh, is that Chapel Hill? Mm-hmm. Okay, so in Chapel Hill, uh, she was denied that, and then here comes Howard, Howard University, that said that they would offer her tenure straight up, and that's what she—that's where she went. Now UNC um, denied it. There was a big you know, uproar from the world, the the internet faculty and everything. So they ended up finding a way to offer the tenure, but she turned it down. Right. That was, that, that's what I think was very significant about the story. She turned it down to go to Howard. And of course she uh, laid out this really long statement that I'll uh, put in the description of this, but there was one sentence in the statement in particular that affirmed me and at the same time really challenged me in a real way. I'm going to read it. Uh, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones writes here, For too long, black Americans have been taught that success is defined by gaining entry to and succeeding in historically white institutions. I'll Mm -hmm. read that again. For too long, black Americans have been taught that success is defined by gaining entry to and succeeding in historically white institutions. So this is... This is my thought process, Scott. When we talk about these diversity initiatives, these fellowships and all that sort of thing, we're uh, channeling people again. And as I was speaking to a few minutes ago, this sort of conical bore, so to speak, you know, it, it gets narrower and narrower. And the more we can fit ourselves and mute ourselves and change ourselves to fit into that little tiny box, the more it's celebrated. We, you know, if, if someone becomes a principal, whatever, of the New York Philharmonic, that does, a black person does, that will not get the same um, sort of uh, accolade and, and celebration as that same black musician starting his own orchestra and doing his own thing. That's just, you know, the lay of the land. And mm-hmm. when uh, when Nicole uh, Hannah-Jones writes that and then we see the story of it all and, you know, she's uh, she has her receipts, you know, she's going to go hang out with the black folks at ha- Howard. It, it makes it even more difficult for me <clears throat> to think about what it looks like to advocate for black folks in these white spaces. Now, of course, the challenge is the black orchestral spaces don't exist like that, don't exist in that way. So maybe it's about 
uh, reframing those orchestral spaces as ones that actually are not white, you know, taking it back. That's, that's mm. the, that's the only way that it sort of works in my mind. Do you, do you have any reaction uh, to that part of the statement, the idea of success being defined by um, uh, white approximation? Basically, you know, get and, and let's move it to radio uh, being the, uh, you know, primetime host on a black station, a local black station will never be celebrated as much as wherever Ryan Seacrest works or, you know, all of these other big mm -hmm. uh, national things. We mm -hmm. have the Breakfast Club, of course. Shout out to them. But I do think there's something there in, in that statement. Um, let, let, let me backtrack a little bit because you said that UNC denied something about the interaction with Nicole? So the story is one of the, um, you know, one of the folks in position of power, one of the board, one of the trustees didn't like what was happening with the 1619 project. And, you know, again, these states, many states banning it from right, being taught right. in the classroom. So right. um, he didn't like that and found a way for her tenure to be denied, despite her Pulitzer Prize, despite everything that had been happening. Right. The world blew up and said, oh, no, this is bullshit and X, Y, and Z. And, um, and they, they said it was they a offered mistake? It. Well, I, I, I don't really think, maybe. I don't think the uh, the reason matters, but because it was not offered, it's not a mistake to not offer someone like her tenure. So when they offer it after the, the Internet gets mad, you know, she's like, no, actually, I'm just going to go over here where I, where we don't have to have another conversation about it. I just have tenure and that's that. Yep. Uh, I think that arts organizations, schools, employers of all kinds are going to have to have more forethought. Yeah. You know, yep. they, they really are going to have to think about uh, because this opportunity is just gone. Yeah. For them. It's just and, and they're the ones with egg on their face. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You know, this is another one of those um, big organization problems. Is it going to hurt them in the long run? Right. Or do they just have to ride out this news cycle? Or, right, um, yeah. Well, will, will it all be okay in a, in a few years like everything tends to be? But you see, the thing is, is that other people of color will remember this. Oh, yeah. And so in an effort for them to attract that kind of talent in the future, it's going to be so much harder. The The other part of this, and I think, you know, this definitely applies to arts organizations or any type of organization. There are lots of tenured faculty member members at the University of North Carolina, black, white, and otherwise, who were riding for her and, you right. know, um, you know, throwing things in the air and saying that she needs to get tenure. At the end of the day, that sort of allyship didn't, even matter. The argument is that, well, we need folks, we need black folks, we need allies and accomplices in all of these spaces. I see those positions, unfortunately, more often than not, ones that are inconsequential. At the end of the day, if the tenured math faculty at UNC just wanted Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, to, to, to get that tenure, they, they don't have the power to do that. So what use is the argument of, well, we need people in all of these positions and all of these spaces. If at the end of the day, one uh, board of trustee member can just Slap flip it all over, down. you yeah. know, it, it, it makes you question even the idea, the concept of being in the room, especially a, a mostly white room with, with, with that thinking that, you know, would deny a woman like this tenure. For me, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, um, I would have to wonder if, they said, okay, uh, we, it, as a matter of fact, we are going to offer you tenure. Here it is. And she turns it down. If she took it, would she be free to 
teach as she teach what she wanted as she saw fit. That's one of the things we talk about with the protection of tenure. Maybe she would have been, um, or maybe she would have faced more problems. They would have found a way that's, to, that's to, what to I make more work for That's her. what I wonder. Anyway, uh, huge congratulations to Nicole Hannah-Jones. I'm jealous. I aspire one day to uh, teach so-called something <laughs> at, Howard. at Howard. Maybe I can just be one of the TAs. I don't know. But living in Washington, D.C. seems like it'd be a lot, especially <laughs> the way <laughs> politics are these days and everything. Yes. Anyway, well, uh, thank y'all for listening. Um, and as uh, Manny Fresh and Juvenile Amia X affirmed, if you want to smash some guy named Scott, go, 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 go get the shot. I would not turn you down. <laughs> <laughs>